Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month, you will receive a new paranormal soft style tee and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. In all the universes, in all the unities beyond the universes, all who have eyes have eyes that speak. How you like that? Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to the Cryptique After Party. I'm joined as always by the reason I wake up at 5.30 in the afternoon and pump iron until my chest is absolutely shredded. Ryan, what's going on? Am I the Joker to your Batman? Yes. That very much sounds like a Batman thing. It is. It's off a Lego Batman. Is it? (laughs) Yes. Alright, so as always, you guys know the drill. The best way for us to grow is for you to share us with friends and family or anybody that you think will be interested in it or anybody who you think might hate listen to us. We also thrive on social media, being shared, (laughs) getting suggestions, interacting with people. You can find us all over. But now, lately, we've been pushing TikTok at Cryptique underscore podcast and YouTube at Cryptique podcast. And as always, we appreciate Parabox. We love what they do. We love their designs, their shirts, and you can find a link to what they've got going on in the show notes. But what are we talking about tonight? We are talking about Barney and Betty Hill, also known as Betty and Barney Hill. So not Benny Hill. Sorry. I was going to try and sneak that into a joke, but you know. Play some yakety sax in the background. That's right. All right, Barney and Betty Hill were an American couple who claimed they were abducted by extraterrestrials in a rural portion of New Hampshire from September 19th through September 20th, 1961. The incident came to be called the Hill Abduction and the Zeta Reticuli Incident. You say Zeta, right? Yeah. All right. Because the star map shown to Betty Hill could possibly be the Zeta Reticuli system, according to some researchers. Their story was adapted into a best-selling 1966 book, The Interrupted Journey, and the 1975 television film, The UFO Incident. So, there's a couple ways to make a buck. 
Most of Betty Hill's notes, tapes, and other items have been placed in the permanent collection at the University of New Hampshire, her alma mater. In July 2011, the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources marked the site of the alleged craft's first approach with the historical marker. The Hill story was widely publicized in books and movies and now on podcasts. Tell us about the background, Ryan. All right. The Hills lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Barney was employed by the United States Postal Service while Betty was a social worker. Active in the local Unitarian congregation, the Hills were also members of the NAACP and community leaders, and Barney sat on a local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. They were an interracial couple at a time when it was particularly uncommon in the United States. Barney was black and Betty was white. Let's talk about the UFO encounter. According to a variety of reports given by the Hills, the alleged UFO sighting happened about 10.30 p.m. on September 19, 1961. The Hills were driving back to Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls in Montreal, which has awesome steak seasoning. Just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, Betty claimed to have observed a bright point of light in the sky that moved from below the moon and the planet Jupiter upward to the west of the moon. While Barney navigated US Route 3, Betty reasoned that she was observing a falling star, only it moved upward. Because it moved erratically and grew bigger and brighter, Betty urged Barney to stop the car for a closer look as well as to walk their dog, Delcy. That's a cool name for a dog. Yeah. Barney stopped at a scenic picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. Betty, looking through the binoculars, observed an odd-shaped craft flashing multicolored lights travel across the face of the moon. And when we're saying this, she's observing this in the sky. I- I'm assuming that she understands that it's not like she's not seeing something on the surface of the moon. It's just traveling, blocking her vision of the moon. Because her sister had several years earlier said she had seen a flying saucer, Betty thought it might be what she was observing. Through binoculars, Barney observed what he reasoned was a commercial airliner traveling toward Vermont on its way to Montreal. However, he soon changed his mind because, without looking as if it had turned, the craft rapidly descended in his direction. This observation caused Barney to realize, quote, this object that was a plane was not a plane. Pretty scary, huh? I mean, think about stopping and seeing something in the sky. You're looking through binoculars, assuming they were decent binoculars. You see this thing and then it's like, oh shit, it sees me too and comes right at you. How would you react? (sighs) Probably not particularly positively. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I really don't know how I'd react. But I do think a lot of people don't really know what they're seeing in the sky. Mm -hmm. While I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about Kim. The other night when we were driving home (laughs) and there was a light in the sky. You know, it was like dusk. Mm. But there was a light that was significantly brighter than stars. I didn't notice it right away because... It was more on her side of the car. (laughs) Yeah, and I was driving, and she was like, what is that? And she pointed. She was like, is that a plane? And I glanced at it, and then I looked back at the road, and I glanced at it a couple more times, and it didn't move at all. But it was bright, and I was. she was like, you know, I don't think she 
necessarily thought that it was a UFO, which is like, what the fuck is that? Phantom lighthouse. Yeah, and it's like, uh, I was like, it's probably a planet. Mm. I don't know. And she was like, how can you tell it's a planet? I was like, it's going to be way brighter than a normal star, and it's not going to, like, twinkle. It won't appear to, like, blink or twinkle. And it's going to smell like your anus? <laughs> I think it was... I think it was probably Venus or Saturn, but I don't know for sure because all I know is it wasn't Mars because the color was wrong, but yeah. I would like to think smell of Uranus in the sky. <laughs> I would like to think that if this happened to me, I would take refuge in the woods if that was available. If, you know, it's a pasture or desert uh, I don't know, but I would think you could hide better in the woods. But I think a lot of people, obviously, we don't know how we would actually react because it's not happening to us. But you could just be in total awe, just mesmerized. Mm-hmm. At at some point, they could have some sort of psychic hold over you or, a, you know, even like a tractor beam or something where you can't really move. You're just frozen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's there's a lot of weird stuff in this guy anyway. You'll see plane lights or helicopter lights or whatever that appear to move strangely. Or like you probably everybody's seen planes that are taking off and like fighting the wind. And it just looks really odd. Like they're not really moving very much. Yeah. Or, you know, and then the way that their lights appear in the sky, stuff like that. But then again, I've been on planes and seen stuff like right over the cloud level. Mm-hmm. No idea what it was like. There was one time where. Just way off in the distance, I could see some kind of object that was above the clouds. It was clearly separated from the clouds. It's just like, well, I don't know what that is, but nobody else is freaking out. So it's probably nothing. (laughs) It's probably nothing to worry about. It probably is some kind of like weird cloud formation that I just can't make out from this distance. But oh, it's ball lightning or swamp gas for sure. It weather balloon. Maybe I saw the the balloon from China. Maybe. I just didn't know. Nobody knew. Everybody just ignored it. They're like, well, nobody else is saying anything about it. Maybe I'll just let it go. Well, I'll tell you what the Hills did. They continued driving on the isolated road, moving very slowly through Franconia Notch in order to observe the object as it came even closer. At one point, the object passed above a restaurant and signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain and came out near the old man of the mountain. Uh, is that the uh, rock formation, like the famous rock formation up in uh, New England? I guess that's what they're referencing. It's a, a rock formation that does look like an old man's face just coming out of the uh, cliffs. It's pretty cool. I Google think, it. yeah, I, I think that's what it is. Old man of the mountain. Betty testified that it was at least one and a half times the length of the granite cliff profile, which was 40 feet long, and that it seemed to be rotating. The couple watched as the silent, illuminated craft moved erratically and bounced back and forth in the night sky. About one mile south of Indian Head, they said, the object rapidly descended toward their vehicle, causing Barney to stop in the middle of the highway. The huge, silent craft hovered about 80 to 100 feet above the hills 1957 Chevy Bel Air and filled the entire field of view in the windshield. It reminded Barney of a huge pancake. 
Carrying his pistol in his pocket, he stepped away from the vehicle and moved closer to the object. Using the binoculars, Barney claimed to have seen 8 to 11 humanoid figures who were peering out of the craft's windows, seeming to look at him. In unison, all but one figure moved to what appeared to be a panel on the rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the craft. The one remaining figure continued to look at Barney and communicated a message telling him to, quote, stay where you are and keep <laughs> looking. Barney had a recollection of observing the humanoid forms wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. Red lights on what appeared to be bat-wing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the craft and a long structure descended from the bottom. The silent craft approached what Barney estimated was within 50 to 80 feet overhead and 300 feet away. On October 21, 1961, Barney reported to National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena or NICAP investigator Walter Webb that, quote, the beings were somehow not human. Tell us about the immediate aftermath of what just happened to the hills. Arriving home at about dawn, the hills stated that they had some odd sensations and impulses they could not readily explain. Many insisted their luggage be kept near the back door rather than in the main part of the house. Their watches would never work again. Barney said that the leather strap for the binoculars was torn, though he could not recall it tearing. The toes of his best dress shoes were scraped. Barney says he was compelled to examine his genitals in the bathroom, though he found nothing unusual. They took long showers to remove possible contamination, and each drew a picture of what they had observed. Perplexed, the Hills say they tried to reconstruct their chronology of events as they witnessed the UFO and drove home. But immediately after they heard the buzzing sounds, their memories became incomplete and fragmented. After sleeping for a few hours, Betty awoke and placed the shoes and clothes she had worn during the drive into her closet, observing that the dress was torn at the hem, zipper, and lining. Later, she retrieved the items from her closet. She noticed a pinkish powder on the dress. She hung the dress on her clothesline, and the pink powder blew away, but the dress was irreparably damaged. She threw it away, but then changed her mind, retrieved the dress, and hung it in her closet. Over the years, five laboratories have conducted chemical and forensic analyses on the dress. There were shiny, concentric circles on their car's trunk that had not been there the previous day. Betty and Barney experimented with a compass, noting that when they moved it close to the spots, the needle would whirl rapidly. But when they moved it away a few inches from the shiny spots, it would drop down. Interesting. Yeah, so some kind of weird magnetic transference. Like something was attached to their trunk lid and was so strong it magnetized that metal. It's odd to me that it would only affect three spots. Yeah. Unless it was some sort of like a drip. Mm. Yeah, so uh, if that's true, which it is, I've actually seen video, it is definitely something that I think would be hard to fake. I mean, I did see a thing today at Home Depot where you can magnetize and demagnetize your like screwdrivers and stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, like having magnetic spots on the back of your car, I think that would be difficult. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's talk about the initial report to the U.S. Air Force and NICAP. Walter N. Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member who we referenced earlier, met with the Hills in 1961. In a six-hour interview, the Hills related all they could remember of the UFO encounter. Barney stated that he had developed a mental block and that he suspected there were some portions of the event that he did not wish to remember. He described in detail all that he could remember about the craft and the appearance of the somehow-not-human figures aboard it. Webb stated that they were telling the truth and the incident probably occurred exactly as reported except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observations where human judgment is involved, such as exact time and length of visibility, apparent sizes of object and occupants, distance and height of object, along with some other concerns. Yeah. I mean, he did a six-hour interview, and he believes them. But I think in any case like this, there's a possibility that someone else would see the opportunity to capitalize and maybe not be as objective as one would hope. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Betty's dreams. Oh, ten days after the alleged UFO encounter, Betty began having a series of vivid dreams, which continued for five successive nights. She stated that she had experienced them with a degree of detail and intensity that she had never had before. After the fifth night, they stopped and never recurred, although they occupied her thoughts during the day. When she mentioned them to Barney, he was sympathetic but not too concerned, and the matter was dropped. Betty did not mention them to Barney again. In November 1961, Betty began writing down the details of her dreams. In one dream, she and Barney encountered a roadblock and men who surrounded their car. She lost consciousness but struggled to regain it. Then she realized she was being forced by two small men to walk in a forest at night and of seeing Barney walking behind her, though when she called to him, he seemed to be in a trance or sleepwalking. The men stood about 5 feet to 5 feet 4 inches tall and wore matching blue uniforms, with caps like those worn by military cadets. They appeared nearly human, with black hair, dark eyes, prominent noses, and bluish lips. Their skin was a grayish color. She and Barney were taken to their car, where the leader suggested that they wait to watch the craft's departure. They did so, and then resumed their drive home. So it sounds like she sort of relived the experience or a portion of it mm-hmm. through dreams. Yeah. And I wonder if these little men that she's talking about are the like hybrid children that we heard about in mm. the episode that we released Tuesday. Yeah. And that's another theory that I've read before as to why the greys would be trying to hybridize is so that they're, they can have uh, sort of like spies. Yeah. You know, beings that fit in better with us who biologically are more compatible with like the planet and the environment and would be able to maybe pick up on social cues and culture a little bit Mm -hmm. easier. Yeah. They just need to work on those black eyes. If you guys haven't listened to our first episode black-eyed kids you need to listen to that that's pretty cool but let's talk about medical help in more interviews missing time having read webb's initial report 
researchers had many questions for the hills. One of their main questions was about the length of the trip. Although the hills had noted that they had arrived home later than anticipated, the almost 180 mile drive should have taken about four hours. They did not realize that they had arrived home seven hours after their departure from Colebrook. The couple had no explanation, a phenomenon ufologists call missing time. The Hills claimed to recall almost nothing of the 35 miles of US Route 3 between Lincoln and Ashland. Both claimed to recall an image of a fiery orb sitting on the ground. Betty and Barney reasoned that it must have been the moon, but Holman and Jackson informed them that the moon had set earlier in the evening. The subject of hypnosis came up and it was decided that it should be carried out in order to recover previously irretrievable memories. Barney was apprehensive, but thought it might help Betty put to rest what Barney described as, quote, the nonsense about her dreams. Wow, that's supportive, Barney. <laughs> Dick. <laughs> Tell uh, us about the private disclosure. A toxic man. <laughs> On November 23rd, 1962, the Hills attended a meeting at the parsonage of their church where Captain Ben H. Sweat. Mm. Ooh, that's a great name, Captain Sweat. <laughs> ben Sweat. Of the, United, ben <laughs> of the United States Air Force was a guest speaker. Having had an interest in hypnosis, the Hills approached Sweat privately and related their strange encounter. Sweat was particularly interested in the missing time of the Hills account. Hills asked if he would hypnotize them to recover their memories, but Sweat declined and cautioned them against going to an amateur hypnotist such as himself. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that's admirable that he's like, you know what? I'm not well equipped enough to carry out this hypnosis. You should go to a professional. That's cool. For sure. For sure. Very, yeah, it's very respectable to do something like that because, yeah, I mean, just knowing your limits, not messing with something you shouldn't mess with. Yeah. Always a good idea. We will talk more about the Hills hypnosis sessions after a quick break. Boom. Boom. How you like that? Like that? Like that? Pretty intense. Has a long needle in his hand. And it, it's, it's bigger than any needle I've ever seen. And he, I asked him what he's going to do with it. And he said, just a simple test to hold her face. And I asked him what. And he said, he just wants to put it in my table. And it's just a simple test. I don't know it won't hurt. Don't do it. Don't do it. And even though it won't do it. And I'm crying and I tell him it's hurting. It's hurting. It's hurting. Get it out. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Why don't you tell us about Simon's hypnosis session? Okay. So, under hypnosis, as was consistent with his conscious recall, Barney reported that the binocular strap had broken when he ran from the UFO back to his car. He recalled driving the car away from the UFO, but afterwards he felt irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. Good choice. 
<laughs> yeah, always a good choice. He eventually sighted six men standing in the dirt road. The car stalled and three of the men approached the car. They told Barney not to fear them. He was still, if anybody tells you do not fear me <laughs> or do not involve a lawyer or do not get the police involved, those are the opposite of the things that you should be doing. He was still anxious, however, and he reported that their leader told Barney to close his eyes. So do not fear us six random men standing on a dirt road in the middle of the night in the woods. And just close your eyes. Be chill, man. Be cool. What's Fonzie like? He's cool. Be That's like how that. they get you to relax your butt cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> he was still anxious, however, <laughs> reported that the leader told him to close his eyes. Uh, while hypnotized, Barney said, I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. I think what what he means is like the gaze, the stare was so strong that it just felt like the this person or this alien's eyes were coming out like bulging at him, like connecting with him. Okay, not like not like Louis Armstrong bulging, but <sighs> all right. Go ahead. Steve Buscemi, whoever you want to go with. <laughs> Barney described the beings as generally similar to Betty's hypnotic, not dream, recollection. The beings often stared into his eyes, said Barney, with a terrifying, mesmerizing effect. Under hypnosis, Barney said things like, Oh, those eyes. They're there in my brain. From his first hypnosis session, and I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine, and I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. And every time we say eyes, you take a drink of Red Bull and you stay awake forever. That's right. This was from his second hypnosis session, minus the Red Bull part. Right. <laughs> then he goes on to say, all I see are these eyes. I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. While Betty reported a conversation with the leader in English, Barney said he heard them speaking in a mumbling language he did not understand. Betty also mentioned this detail. The few times they communicated with him, Barney said it seemed to be thought transference. At that time, he was unfamiliar with the word telepathy. But what about Betty Sessions? Under hypnosis, Betty's account was like her five dreams about the UFO abduction, with some notable differences, mainly pertaining to her capture and release. Also, the technology on the craft was different. The short men differed significantly in physical appearance, and the sequential order of the abduction differed. Barney's and Betty's memories in hypnotic regression were, however, consistent with one another. What were the conclusions? <laughs> when the series of hypnosis sessions were complete, Simon wrote an article about the Hills for the journal Psychiatric Opinion explaining his conclusion that the case was a singular psychological aberration. They go back to their regular lives? The Hills did go back to their regular lives. They were willing to discuss the alleged UFO encounter with friends, family, and the occasional UFO researcher, but the Hills apparently made no effort to seek publicity. Unlike uh, a certain prince. <laughs> you know, pure, purely talking about the South Park episode, which was definitely fictional in any... Uh, <laughs> Likenesses were coincidental, right? <laughs> right. On October 25th, 1965, a front page story in the Boston Traveler asked, UFO chiller? Did they seize couple? That's the headline. It's goofy. Reporter John H. Luttrell 
of the Traveler had allegedly been given an audio tape recording of the lecture the Hills had made in Quincy Center in late 1963. Luttrell learned that the Hills had undergone hypnosis with Simon. He also obtained notes from confidential interviews the Hills had given to UFO investigators. On October 26th, United Press International picked up Luttrell's story and the Hills earned international attention. In 1966, writer John G. Fuller secured the cooperation of the Hills and Simon and wrote the book The Interrupted Journey about the case. The book included a copy of Betty's sketch of the star map, which I don't think we mentioned, but it is something that she's talked about in some of the interviews. Right. uh, Having seen during the abduction experience, you know, it kind of sounds like almost some of the things that we see in like Star Wars or Star Trek. Like Like a a star map of being able to. Yeah. Yeah. Like a holographic sort of representation of the placement of celestial objects in relation to each other, presumably for the purpose of navigation. She seemed like a bright woman. Except for marrying Barney, who was like, don't tell me about your nonsense (laughs) dreams. No, uh, (laughs) No, actually, you know, we should say that they apparently from you know, the documentaries I've watched and the videos I've seen, they seemed to have a great relationship and really loved each other and got along great. Mm -hmm. But my point, if somebody, even with three hours, so they had three hours of lost time, let's just say, boom, you start the timer and you have three hours on that ship to stare at that star map. You have to be pretty special to actually remember the position of all these stars and be able to, you know, recreate it on a piece of paper. And I know it wasn't like thousands of stars, but I just think that's kind of a, I don't know, an odd image that it would be kind of hard to burn into your memory. Mm -hmm. Especially at that time. Like there, there would be, this was before Star Trek. Star Trek was 66. I mean, there were definitely other sci-fi properties before that, but very little that probably would have presented the kind of image that she described. Right. So uh, we'll get into the star map, but I just think recreating it would be extremely difficult. Yes. The book was a quick success and went through several printings. Barney died of a cerebral hemorrhage on February 25th, 1969, at the age of 46. Wow. Super, super. Yeah, that's unbelievably young. After which Betty went on to become a celebrity in the UFO community. She died of cancer on October 17th, 2004, at the age of 85, never having remarried. I I think maybe she was kind of forced into becoming a celebrity a little bit. You know, if your husband is the one that was doing the providing. Now, I I think she may have owned like an apartment building or something like that, but he was, you know, the main breadwinner. So you lose him at age 46 and you've got to figure out how you're going to provide for yourself for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And then people are saying, come and talk at this conference. You know, we'll give you $500 or whatever. You're thinking like, shit, I guess I got to do what I got to do. But that's a long time to live, you know, without your soulmate. But anyway, let's talk about analyzing the star map. In 1968, Marjorie Fish of Oak Harbor, Ohio, read Fuller's book, Interrupted Journey. Fish was an elementary school teacher and amateur astronomer. Intrigued by the star map, 
Fish wondered if it might be, quote, deciphered to determine which star system the UFO came from. Assuming that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent Earth's sun, Fish constructed a three-dimensional model of nearby sun-like stars, specifically stars deemed to have characteristics that could support life, such as that found on Earth, using thread and beads, basing stellar distances on those published in the 1969 Gleiss Star Catalog. Studying thousands of vantage points over several years, the only one that seemed to match the hill map was from the viewpoint of the double star system of Zeta Reticuli, about 39 light years from Earth. So I'm sure our listeners are all aware of this, but just in case, a light year is the distance that light will travel in a year. So if you think about how fast light is, how far it could travel in a year, and then 39 light years, that's pretty far. Mm -hmm. What did Fish do with her analysis? Agreeing with her conclusions, Webb sent the map to Terence Dickinson, editor of the magazine Astronomy. Dickinson did not endorse Fish and Webb's conclusions, but for the first time in the journal's history, Astronomy invited comments and debate on a UFO report, starting with an opening article in the December 1974 issue. For about a year afterward, the opinions page of Astronomy carried arguments for and against Fish's star map. Notable was an argument made by Carl Sagan and Steven Soder, arguing that the star map was little more than a random alignment of chance points. In an episode of Cosmos in 1980, Sagan demonstrated that without the lines drawn in the maps, The hill map bore no resemblance to the real-life map. In contrast, those more favorable to the map, such as David Saunders, a statistician who had been on the Condon UFO study, disagreed. Saunders claimed that a match among 16 stars of the specific spectral type among the thousand stars nearest the sun is at least 1,000 to 1 against. In the early 1990s, the European Hipparchos high-precision parallax collecting satellite mission, which measured the distance to more than 100,000 stars around the sun more accurately than ever before, showed that some of the stars in Fish's interpretation of the map were in fact much farther away than previously thought. Other research revealed that some stars counted by Fish as likely to host life would have had to be excluded by her own criteria while some other stars which had been discounted by fish have been recognized as potential abodes for life. Results such as these led fish herself to reject her hypothesis in a public statement. A lot of science. (laughs) Yeah. In a 1966 publication of Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller, it details much of the Hill's claims. Excerpts of the book were published in Look Magazine. Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience by Betty Hill's niece, Kathleen Marden, further explored Fuller's themes along with scientist Stanton T. Friedman. And we love Stanton T. Friedman. If you guys don't know who that is, you should look up a YouTube video. He's got the coolest eyebrows ever. They look like horns. (laughs) Marden, who sat on the board of the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, for 10 years knew Betty well and had spoken with her at great length about the encounter. But they were not without their criticism. You can go ahead. No, no, no. I'm looking up as a... Oh my god, yeah, I know this guy. Hmm. I I did not realize that was him. 
His his whole face is just great. He's exactly what he should look like. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so where are we where are we at? Psychiatrist later suggested. Yes. Psychiatrist later suggested that the supposed abduction was a hallucination brought on by the stress of being an interracial couple in the early 1960s United States. That seems so stupid. It's. I am 100% sure it wasn't easy to say that you hallucinated a very right. specific alien abduction encounter because of that. Yes. Just seems so odd to me. All right. Jim McDonald, a resident of the area in which the Hills claim to have been abducted, has produced a detailed analysis of their journey, which concludes that the episode was provoked by their misperceiving an aircraft warning beacon on Cannon Mountain as a UFO. McDonald notes that from the road the Hills took, the beacon appears and disappears at exactly the same time the Hills describe the UFO as appearing and disappearing. The remainder of the experience is ascribed to stress, sleep deprivation, and false memories recovered under hypnosis. After reading McDonald's recreation, UFO expert Robert Schaefer writes that the Hills are the poster children for not driving when sleep deprived. You think that'd be somebody who fell asleep at the wheel and crashed their car, but now it's apparently them who got abducted by aliens. Absolutely. That's why you shouldn't do it. They used to have those stupid public service announcements. I, I could see that. Make sure you don't drive while you're sleepy or you'll feel like you've been abducted by aliens. That is such a goofy theory. Let's talk about the Skeptical Inquirer columnist Robert Schaefer. He wrote, quote, I was present at the National UFO Conference in New York City in 1980, at which Betty presented some of the UFO photos she had taken. She showed what must have been far more than 200 slides, mostly of blips, blurs, and blobs against a dark background. These were supposed to be UFOs coming in close, chasing her car, landing, etc., after her talk had exceeded about twice its allotted time, Betty was literally jeered off the stage by what had been at first a sympathetic audience. This incident, witnessed by many of ufology's leaders and top activists, removed any lingering doubts about Betty's credibility. She had none. In 1995, Betty Hill wrote a self-published book, A Common Sense Approach to UFOs. It's filled with delusional stories such as seeing entire squadrons of UFOs in flight and a truck levitating above the freeway. Schaefer later wrote that as late as 1977, Betty Hill would go on UFO vigils at least three times a week. One evening, she was joined by UFO enthusiast John Oswald. When asked about Betty's continuing UFO observations, Oswald stated, She's not really seeing UFOs, but she is calling them that. On the night they went out together, Mrs. Hill was unable to distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight. In a later interview, Schaefer recounts that Betty Hill wrote, UFOs are a new science like that, like that. and our science cannot explain them. So when John Oswald says, Mrs. Hill was unable to distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight, I think he's meaning that is literally. I don't think that he's trying to be sarcastic, right? Yeah. Yeah. So did the Hills get their story from TV? Find out after a quick break. Boom, boom. How you like that? Like that? Like that? Pretty intense. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. 
tell us about the outer limits. In his 1990 article, Entirely Unpredisposed, Martin Kottmeyer suggested that Barney's memories revealed under hypnosis might have been influenced by an episode of the science fiction television show The Outer Limits, titled The Belarus Shield, which was broadcast about two weeks before Barney's first hypnotic session. The episode featured an extraterrestrial with large eyes who says, In all the universes and all the unities beyond the universes, all who have eyes have eyes that speak. The report from the regression featured a scenario that was in some respects similar to the television show. I like that quote, though. In part, Kottmeyer wrote, Wraparound eyes are an extreme rarity in science fiction films. I know of only one instance. They appeared on the Alien episode of an old TV series, The Outer Limits, titled The Valero Shield, which we just talked about. A person familiar with Barney's sketch in The Interrupted Journey and the sketch done in collaboration with the artist David Baker will find a frisson of deja vu creeping up his spine when seeing this episode. The resemblance is much abetted by an absence of ears, hair, and nose on both aliens. I don't know. I might have to watch this if I'm going to get frisson and deja vu. Yeah. Could it be by chance? Consider this. Barney first described and drew the wraparound eyes during the hypnosis session dated the 22nd of February, 1964. The Bolero Shield was first broadcast on the 10th of February, 1964, only 12 days separating these two instances. If the identification is admitted, the commonness of wraparound eyes in the abduction literature falls to cultural forces. When a different researcher asked Betty about the outer limits, she insisted she had never heard of it. Kottmeyer also pointed out that some motifs in the Hill's account were present in the 1953 film Invaders from Mars. So they deny, well, at least Betty denies watching it. So, you know, he may have not seen anything or they may have both watched it and she's lying. Who knows? Could be. Could be. All right. What's your final thoughts? Oh, I think they were abducted by aliens, man. That simple? Yeah. I mean, I don't know why. So the whole interracial couple in the 60s thing, I feel like that's, well, I feel like it's more of a reason to not want to seek a lot of attention. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's more of a reason to not want to be like, hey, look at me. I listened to this crazy thing that happened to me and whatever. But it's it's something you would want to talk about and warn people about. Yeah. I mean, it it seems logical that if something happened, then you were concerned, like a, a good concerned citizen, you know, Barney and Betty would have told somebody about it. I don't see why they would have made any of it up. Yeah, agreed. And and the kind of the weird, like I was saying earlier, like there's these weird little elements to these stories that's like, you could make up a crazy story, but why would you add these little details? Like her wanting to leave their bags on like the back porch or whatever, or near the back of the house instead of in the main part of the house, or, you know, being compelled to like throw the dress away and get it back out and whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not really sure what purpose that would serve in a made-up story. Yeah. What about you, though? What do you think? I mean, if I was betting, I would say something happened to them. Something traumatic. Something that they can't explain. Now you sound like me. Something that... 
you're taking on my skeptic mantle. <laughs> we need to look further into this mystery, but it, it seems really random. And one of the things that bugs me about the story is that it just happened to be by this, you know, historic rock formation. You know, this, uh, trust me. I don't know a whole lot about rock formations around the world, but I know about this. It's a mm -hmm. famous place. That kind of gives me pause. I don't know if we covered this or not, but Barney was in the military as well. So I guess that has to be taken into account. I, I would hope that a trained soldier would have a better reaction than to just stand there and be taken. Right. Or to make up a fantastical story. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, I don't think that they're making it up. I, I think that they just sound credible. Even though it sounds a little rehearsed, they sound credible. And Yeah, I mean, once you've told a story so many times, it's going to sound rehearsed. True. And this would have been a couple years after it happened, so I'm sure they right. told the story a million times. All right, well... It could be aliens from outer space, which I guess that's what she's saying that they definitely were. Could be interdimensional, could be demonic. There's a lot of things, but something happened to them. Yeah, I don't know what I think is scarier because I've read a lot of UFO encounters and abduction reports that like, are genuinely terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's like... I don't know, just it's difficult to come to grips with the idea that something could be out there that's so much more powerful and advanced to us that we're basically nothing. Mm -hmm. There are definitely aliens. I mean, there's no way that in the vastness of space there's nothing else out there. Like, there has to be. Like, statistically, it's almost a certainty. It's just whether or not... I mean, they have to be advanced enough to like be able to detect us in some way... And then again, in the history of the universe and the vastness of it, there probably is some civilization that's reached a point where it could detect us. But it's like, what would they think of us? You know, mm -hmm. it's it's probably like a best case scenario that they're just kind of cautiously observing us. Yeah. Because the other alternatives what would probably be best for us is if they just didn't notice us at all mm -hmm. <laughs> or they noticed us and, you know, they're looking for intelligent life. They notice us. And they conclude that there is no intelligent life on this planet <laughs> because we are so far beneath what they've achieved. Well, they're going to probably hear the podcast and, you know, that'll bring them around. Show up. Yeah. But yeah. Or then the other one is that they perceive us as some kind of potential threat right. or like a resource uh, opportunity, you know, to harvest something from us or the planet. Either of those two are horrifying. Right. Horrifying. Right. I don't know. I guess that about wraps it up. Please, as always, share us on social media, friends, family. It's the best way for us to grow. It's the most credible way for us to grow. You know, who clicks on ads? I mean, I do sometimes, but you know, <laughs> we also thrive on Whoa, social media, like being that. shared, getting suggestions, interacting with people. You can Pretty find us all over. But now, lately, we've been pushing TikTok at Cryptique underscore podcast and YouTube at Cryptique podcast. And as always, we appreciate Parabox. We love what they do. We love their designs, their shirts. 
and you can find a link to what they've got going on in the show notes. We'll be back with a new one for you next week. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. <laughs>